Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Okay, you start. I'll do the bio. (laughs) Sorry, that's what I'm trying to mime. Perhaps we should leave that in, you know, just to show how really well done these (laughs) these podcasts are. How smooth we are. All right. Hello and welcome to History Hack. It's Kit Chapman here. I am joined by the lovely Zach White. Zach, who is our guest today? Well, we've, you know, I was discussing this with Alex about why this individual continues to return so frequently with an eclectic mix of different historical topics. We reckon it's because he's putting together his own calendar of all the different history hack appearances, something that he denies vociferously. Yes, folks, we are joined by Josh Proben, the master of adventures in history land and author of Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira and Wild East. Josh I'm not even sure how long it's been since we had you on. I know we tend to see you down the pub. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, surviving, you know, we're still still here, so that's good. You are sporting a nice cardigan, I have to say. Thank you. It's 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 deceptive though, because this is actually a linen shirt, which is which has been designed by a World War II spy master people to fool the enemy into thinking it's a cardigan and therefore thinking I'm weaker than I am. Okay, it definitely looks like a cardigan. Let's move on to some history, though. So we are going to touch on something which I think kind of resides in people's minds, because if you say, remember the Alamo, they go, oh, yeah, the Alamo. But there quite often ends a lot of the knowledge. And I say this with a huge amount of guilt, because that's sort of the case for me. Um, So for everyone who didn't watch kind of the John Wayne films, Billy Bob Thornton, um, who's the guy in the Day After Tomorrow who's in that more modern version? That guy. Um, that, that's that's another really Dennis bad... Quaid. Uh, th- yes, him. Thank you, Kit. You saved me. Um, boy, the outtakes for this are going to be incredible. If you haven't watched those films, you perhaps... And you haven't read up on it, then the Alamo doesn't really mean much to you. So let, let's, let's set the context for people. You know, 
before we get into the Alamo itself, let's talk Mexico, United States, Texas, where it all fits in. So just very, very briefly, just kind of give us the story here. Well, saddle up, boys and girls, and let's ride into this amazing piece of history. Was that meant to be an American accent? You darn tootin', boy. <laughs> oh, dear. Carry on, my friend. <laughs> well, the year was 1835. The newly independent state of Mexico was poised to become the superpower of the Americas. <laughs> what was once the entire province of Nuevo España was now the Federal Republic of Mexico. The Northern Territory spanning from modern day California across to all the juiciest Gulf, Mex Gulf of Mexico ports. It wasn't long before all eyes were on rootin' tootin' rural Texas. And I will stop doing that, don't worry. <laughs> That, uh, if you're listening, that was for you, Jessica Manor, who I talked through some of these topics with, and I'm blaming you as well. Anyway, that is pretty much the case, though. Um, what this episode will actually be seeing is not so much a war for freedom, but the turning point in the paths of two great American nations. Remember that America as a concept is not, or uh, nor should it be seen as an Anglo-centric thing just because the northern side of the continent became more powerful. This is essentially the beginning of how the USA became top dog out of the breakaways from the European colonial system. The slightly older USA had been interested in Texas since before, the, since before Mexican independence, and the immigrant problem that would beset the New Mexican Republic had its own origins uh, in the Spanish attempts to fix and control a contested border that would not be properly established until after the Texas Revolution. What the Mexicans called Tejas was the connection point between Mexico and the United States in 1819. President Monroe tried to establish a firm border with what was then Spanish America by surrendering all claims to the land south of the Arkansas and Red Rivers and west to the Sabine in return for Spain ceding Florida. So, some Americans saw this as um, a kind of a mistake. They saw much more promise in the wide open prairies of Texas than the swamps of Florida inhabited by angry Seminoles. And some limited immigration rights, for want of a better word, were, had been granted to a businessman named Moses Austin and 300 families who he said were former Spanish Louisianians, don't even know if that's a word, uh, wanting to come wanting to come home, in quotes, just before the Spanish Empire in Mexico ended. The Spanish had been reluctant to let the Anglo settlers into Nuevo España and had granted an exception to Austin, who died before he could actually go, and his son Stephen Austin was the man who really opened the floodgates to foreign settlement in Texas, which the, the Mexican state in its various incarnations were pleased enough to allow. American interest in Texas didn't end in 1819, or with that indeed, um, because Austin's breach into Texas sparked a fever for settlement, and President Andrew Jackson outright tried to buy Texas in as much as all the land as far south as the Rio Grande from Mexico towards the end of the first term in office, uh, end of his first term in office anyway, uh, feeling that it was the only way to stop rivalries developing between the two republics. As we'll see, that didn't quite work out. Okay, so it sounds that uh, with a bit of hindsight, this newly independent Mexico in its various incarnations could have just avoided a lot of trouble by not honoring the land grants offered by the Spanish. Um, so why didn't they just tell the Americans to get lost? 
Well, it's a very good question. Um, and they probably should have. But uh, when Mexico became independent, it found itself in a peculiar position. Unlike the Northern Republic of 13 semi-autonomous states forming one union, Mexico was the reverse. It had formerly been the monolith of Nueva España, and it had no autonomous zones. Already, it had attempted to adopt a constitutional imperial model to try and ease the country out of the colonial mode, uh, mold, but then ended up trying for a republic. But that meant decentralizing power and granting autonomy to a number of states, such as the one called Coahuila y Texas, which in 1821, when Mexico became independent, was underpopulated, dirt poor, and mostly lawless. Allowing the eager to work northerners in seemed the answer to their economic and security issues there. The Mexicans also did their best to try and tie the new settlers to Mexico uh, and its new 1824 constitution in the somewhat deluded hopes that allowing a mass of proven troublemakers and land grabbers in would somehow not backfire. When their country was still highly volatile and trying sometimes violently to establish a stable government. So basically it's, they're trying to solve the issue of the underpopulation of the Northern territories um, and grant a certain amount of autonomy to local governments. So let's, let's keep the kind of thing going because there's a revolution in Texas, right? I mean, how, how does that start, first of all, you know, just kind of give us a flavour of, you know, mm -hmm. where that revolution comes from, but also kind of why and kind of the impact in terms of understanding the story behind the Alamo. Eight years before the first shots were fired, uh, General Mier y Terán was sent to gather information on the state of Texas, or Tejas as he would have called it. Unsettling reports had been coming to Mexico about the large foreign population and its wish to separate itself from its uh, neighbor Coahuila, which was uh, at that point uh, lumped in with Texas. Tehran's report was not reassuring because naturalized foreigners, he noted, outnumbered Mexicans 10 to 1, and with the preponderance of Mexicans uh, remaining poor and ill-educated. Meanwhile, the settlers conducted themselves as if they were in Georgia or Carolina rather than Mexico. He said that among these foreigners are fugitives from justice, honest laborers, vagabonds and criminals, but honorable and dishonorable alike, travel with their political constitution in their pockets, demanding privileges, authority and offices with which uh, such a constitution guarantees." And, uh, unquote. It was sufficiently disturbing for Tehran to go so far as to say, thus I tell myself that it could not be otherwise than that from such a state of affairs should arise an antagonism between the Mexicans and the foreigners, which is not the least of the smoldering fires I have discovered. Um, therefore, I am warning you to take timely measures. Texas could throw the whole nation into revolution. Mexican lack of control and presence in Texas at the official level had led to the creation of a highly volatile atmosphere where the least political tremor uh, could set off a massive earthquake. Um, and that quake came when a man named Santa Ana came to power in 1833. Um, two years after that, his presidency um, had moved to a centralist system, doing away with the federalist model and provoking the constitution of 1824. This was the tremor. Large scale outrage followed, leading to outright rebellion in several states. Uh, the most serious being those in Zacatecas, Yucatan, and Tejas, 
Uh, and surprisingly, as soon as the um, governmental system changed, the Texans were reaching into their pockets to read out their constitutional rights, um, now severely curtailed by Santa Ana. And while the president was off crushing their rebellions elsewhere, the Texans miraculously managed to cobble together um, a citizen army of militias and adventurers and expelled the Mexican garrisons in southern Texas and dug in for the winter, while their newly elected representatives argued about what to do next. Well, let's let's dig into those characters because you've mentioned Santa Ana. Um, oh, sorry, uh, sorry. Santa Ana, the victor of Tampico, the savior of the patria, the Napoleon of the West, given <laughs> his full title. Um, he's often portrayed as a sort of pantomime villain character. So what's the reality there? I don't think he was a pantomime character, so to speak, although he does, he's just excellent fodder for, um, for propaganda and storytelling as you go on. But um, at the time, Santa Ana was a general with a reputation as a sort of a savior figure, like you say, um, because of the because of the War of Independence against Mex uh, sorry, Spain and um, his repulse of the Spanish invasion at Tampico, um, which he took most of the credit for, although it wasn't all him. He was an excellent self-promoter as well. Um, he was not one of the world's military geniuses, but he did have a maxim of sorts, uh, which did work so long as luck was with him. He had learned his soldiering against the Mexicans. He originally started out on the Spanish side um, and then against the Spanish when he switched sides and then against the Yucatecan Zacatec rebels when he became president. Um, so he would try and basically guess what the enemy expected him to do and then do the opposite. That's what he did at Tampico uh, where he took advantage of a hurricane um, messing up the plans for that day and then just attacking anyway. Um, as a result, he marched directly towards Texas in the winter of 1835 or 36. Not the wisest decision as far as sensible heads were concerned because his men suffered terribly during a very cold uh, snap as they marched north. And obviously supplies and logistics were a total mess, but he was determined to just, I'll crush all of this in one year and we'll get it done. Um, he also believed in a certain military psychology, which was predicated on showing no mercy to the enemy in order to break their spirit. This he had seen employed in the Mexican War of Independence, famously in Venezuela, where Simón Bolívar decreed guerra a muerte, um, war to the death, against the Spanish and executed prisoners wholesale, all of which was more or less accepted kind of in Spanish America, albeit being a propaganda victory for the enemy. Um, of course, it was much less tolerated in, North, uh, in the North and in Europe. Politically, he was also criticized for his centrist stance. However, this is a matter of some intricacy because uh, remember that Mexico is still struggling with the legacy of historically being one giant entity of the Spanish empire. Um, and it was a valid point of view considering the difficulty of equitably distributing autonomy to states under a federal constitution. He was nothing though, if not a survivor, and he remained in Mexican politics for an extremely long time um, faithfully, he would be the key figure in Mexican politics from now until the 1840s. Um, and in addition to starting the Texas Revolution, he'd also be in charge when the United States invaded Mexico um, in 1845. Okay, so we have Santa Ana in the red corner, and we have this Texas militia in the blue corner, and their main figure is Sam Houston, aka Dennis Quaid. <laughs> is that right? That's the guy, good old Dennis. Um, yeah, Houston has, uh, is an interesting fellow as well. They're both very characterful, very strong characters. 
Um, he'd served in the War of 1812 uh, and therefore had some, though not as impressive, military achievements under his belt. Um, he'd been a militia major general in Tennessee and actually became governor of Tennessee. Um, and like all the foreign immigrants, he came looking for opportunity in Texas uh, after suffering disappointment elsewhere. In Houston's case, I believe it was the end of, a, of, a, of his marriage that uh, sort of drove him, actually made, made him make the decision to go. Um, he was a Jacksonian Democratic Republican, a friend of the president, who curiously uh, had been inducted into the Cherokee tribe and then been forced to evict them um, under Jackson's, uh, you know, rather, to say the least, controversial Indian Removal Act. And he, um, after coming to Texas, he'd been appointed representative for Nacogdoches, and strongly argued for statehood under the Mexican rule, Texas then being part of, like I say, the state of Coahuila y Texas. Um, after the initial rebellion and battles following the famous action at Gonzales, um, Houston's capable demeanor and uh, his forthright and flinty manner, plus his previous governorship made him very popular. And he played a part in both Texan assemblies that framed the formation of the new republic. Uh, he was then named commander of the Texan Armed Forces after the convention uh, of 1836. Uh, and Houston's, it's interesting because Houston's lack of large independent command means that assessing his method of warfare is difficult. But his goal was basically to try and concentrate a large enough army to defend the territory from Mexican counterattack uh, and hoping to use his contacts in the United States to help um, get uh, military aid and recognition. Rather humorously, the Texas Revolution's speed and success actually meant that Jackson didn't even have time to march into Texas and victoriously liberate the country. Um, he sent arms and money, but never got the time to go any further. Uh, so Houston could at least be sure that his mentor would, would, be working, would be working hard to recognize Texan independence if he could actually win. So this ends up leading us to the Alamo and the kind of the typical what, where, why, when, how, you know, all of these questions. Please tell me there's kind of like a moment where we can say Houston has a problem. <laughs> Houston and has yes, a... I know that was an appalling joke and no, I'm not sorry. <laughs> no, it's excellent. It's excellent because the Alamo is a major problem for Houston and we'll see why in a second. Um, the Alamo was a former mission termed Presidio turned artillery fort first built by the Spanish on the outskirts of San Antonio de Bejar in modern-day San Antonio, southeastern Texas. Um, it was um, taken by the rebels during the Battle of Bejar in uh, 1835, and due to its strategic position, was garrisoned by a small force of volunteers and regulars. But no one really knew what to do with it or its large arsenal of guns because nobody really knew what to do next after Texas you know, kicked the Mexicans out. So so abruptly, um, they even surprised themselves. Um, so bearing that in mind, on the 23rd of February, um, I think, 1836, when Santa Ana's army of operations rolled into town and laid siege to the fort, um, it was, to say the least, a nasty shock, because um, no one really expected him to march north that late in the season. But um, lay siege to the fort he did, which for the length of the engagement was defended by about 200 North Americans, Europeans and Tejanos. Uh, rather than contain it and march on, Santa Ana decided to make an example of the garrison. 
um, and probably use it for a depot once it had been taken, I think. The garrison obligingly bottled themselves inside and sent frantic couriers out pleading for help. And that is, that is, that is the siege of the Alamo. Well, let's talk about the personalities at the Alamo because Sam Houston wasn't there. Um, so initially we have this guy called James Neal and then eventually we end up with William Travis and Jim Bowie running it and suddenly Davy Crockett a Tennessee congressman turns up as well how do they all become involved well uh, obviously Neal was there to begin with he was the original garrison commander um, and he had a, he was pretty firm in his opinion that it needed to be held because it was a fairly good strategic position it had a lot of artillery in it and Jim, Jim Bowie, um, a former slave runner and land speculator from Kentucky with a rep as a dangerous knife fighter who'd married a Bajareña um, and um, had been ambitious to make his fortune in Mexico, showing great flair in the command during the Battle of Bejar, uh, was technically the senior commander in the fort once Neil left. Uh, he, though, agreed with Neil um, on the matter of maintaining the fort, because although he had the although he had the authority to blow the place up and take the guns away if he thought he couldn't hold it, he, they didn't have the means to get the guns out. They didn't have oxen. They didn't have enough carriages and stuff like that. So he decided they better hold it, and he wrote letters out saying, "I'd rather die in a ditch than surrender" and stuff like that. But he was getting quite ill, and. Um, you know, he famously, as everybody will know from the from the movies and such, he was pretty much dying of some sort of consumption or pneumonia or typhoid or something like that um, at the time of crisis. And so command passed over to this guy called um, William Barrett Travis, who is kind of a, a fiery attorney from Alabama. I think it's Alabama or it's Arkansas, one of the two. Um, pardon my unspecified, my poor, my lack of specificity there. Um, but he had a knack for writing catchy and inspiring letters and had played a part in instigating the revolution itself. He held a piece of paper that said he was a regular soldier in the Texas Legion of Cavalry. And he had a sketchy personal history and he seemed to act as if he was sort of small time Simon Bolivar. Um, and actually seemed determined to carry through even if it meant his own death. Uh, Crockett was a frontiersman, and he had no command at the Alamo, no formal command at the Alamo. Um, he was a militiaman, a frontiersman, um, a sometime and somewhat reluctant Indian fighter who ended up with a seat in Congress. He'd much preferred to talk to people and argue them down than fighting people, but it seemed to be, but he seemed to be someone that men trusted as a leader. He'd got on the wrong side of Jackson's Indian removal bill and ended up losing his seat. Essentially, he was in Texas to get a place in the new government and due to his celebrity, was as close to a living legend as Santa Ana was. Uh, yet he held, like I say, no official command during the siege, had no rank. He was just there as one of the guys, but probably the most famous guy there. Um, so those are the three main personalities who get stuck in the Alamo when Santa Ana shows up. Um, Travis ostensibly commanded what the what regular troops there were in the Alamo, um, and Bowie technically commanded the militia because they couldn't agree who was in the overall command. Um, but because Bowie became 
almost unconscious after the first few days of the siege. But um, Travis took over and he wrote the famous victory or death letters appealing for help from, you know, um, lovers of liberty across the world and things like that. And um, that is, that's, uh, that's, a, that's, my, that's my summary of, of the three main most famous people in the Alamo. Of course, there are uh, almost about 200 others, but those are the people that, uh, that I remembered as being there. Although I'm not really sure, I, the Mexicans knew Travis was in there. I'm not sure if they knew the others were in there. I've got some quick fire questions off the back of this. So you mentioned Bowie, Bowie. Mm -hmm. You mentioned he was a knife guy. Mm -hmm. Is that where we get the Bowie knife from? Yes, that's that's where we get the Bowie knife from. It's um, what a Bowie knife is is not clear, to be honest. It's just a large bladed fighting knife. It's um, uh, at the time it was just a large bladed bladed fighting knife. His knife, the Bowie knife, was just a knife he had. And later on, it became made into a particular shape and of an enormous size. And so there's some controversy as to what they actually look like, but that's indeed where the, the, uh, where we get the Bowie knife from. That's is, that where we get, is that where we get David Bowie from? I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> that seems like a question for Phil Collins. <laughs> I must say, when Kit said, what about Bowie? Uh, in the notes when we were collectively prepping this, I thought, Bowie? Has Bowie written like a, a song about, is there some obscure pop culture reference? Is this like <laughs> we, ABBA and Waterloo? But we probably should should mention the, the Phil Collins thing. So Phil Collins is a bit of a, an Alamo obsessive, uh, famously. I think he thinks he's re a reincarnated fighter from the Alamo or something like that. Something like that. He used to own the largest private collection of Alamo memorabilia uh, in the world. And he's, I, there's, there's an ongoing legal thing about him trying to donate it and having a proper venue in Texas to hold it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mad thing. Next up on the quick fire from me, you've got 200 uh, folks inside this fortress trying to hold it against Santa Ana's army. Um, how many did you say were in Santa Ana's army by the time he gets to the Alamo? Well, that's a good, very nicely picked up there. I didn't actually say. Um, it's around six to 7,000 men. So you've um, got 200 thinking that they can hold out for how long do they think they're going to need to hold out against? I don't even, I don't know what they were thinking, to be honest. Um, I guess they wanted to, like I say, there was some strategic merit to wanting to hold the place. Travis, to my mind, is really trying to either die a martyr's death or become a living legend by holding this place, hoping that, um, reinforcements are going to come down they're going to whoop Santa Ana um, right in front of the walls of the Alamo or something like that, I don't know Well, um, That's exactly where I'm going with it because when you look at this you don't need to be a military historian to work out that this, this, this doesn't work out you've got 200 people holding a fort you've got Santa Ana presumably besieging this fort to kind of use it as bait because that's quite often why you besiege a place to use it as bait you've got a militia force that isn't going to give Santa Ana what he wants because one of the fundamentals of war is that if you can avoid it, you don't fight an enemy on the ground that they have chosen. So, I mean, I mean how much of this is the individuals at the top kind of manipulating and almost playing a Russian roulette with the lives of those who are holding this fort? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, Travis, all, all I know is that Travis was determined, hell-bent, 
to not surrender the Alamo. Um, at a certain point, it became obvious he could not do that because Santa Ana... Well, okay, he could have done it at any time. Santa Ana said, you can surrender, but you must surrender at discretion. Um, that obviously, and as obviously as rebels, there had recently been a piece of law enacted by the Mexican central government saying that anybody found in arms was liable to basically be executed. So they knew that if they surrendered, they were, all the male fighting men were probably going to get executed. Um, that doesn't mean they couldn't have escaped because a lot of people were going in and out of the place as couriers all the time, and they were quite able to evade the Mexican patrols because they're all frontiersmen and militiamen, and they know how to move around independently and stuff like that. But um, you know, Travis was dead set on holding the place. Santa Ana was dead set on using his entire force to take the place. And um, yes, it, it seems to be very much uh, a, a question of the will of the individual commanders uh, at work here rather than any grand strategic uh, thing at play. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There was uh, something you mentioned there. You said fighting men. Mm. Uh, were there women and children in the Alamo as well? There were women and children in the Alamo. Quite a, quite a lot of them, in fact. In fact, as well, the, some of the accounts that tell us what happened in the Alamo come from uh, the women, such as uh, Susanna Dickinson and uh, some other people who did not die in the battle because uh, Santa Ana spared the lives of the non-combatants as much as he could. Uh, there were also slaves in the Alamo who were owned by people like Jim Bowie and things like that. Uh, they also survived and left some testimony because slavery being uh, technically illegal in Mexico, they were considered um, forced to be there and therefore were not liable for, to, to be executed. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. 
Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So you, we've touched on this already in terms of kind of the bigger strategic picture, but you've got the Alamo. Alamo is, you know, it's one action. It's one event within a, a much bigger war. So give us that kind of sense of the wider context of the war. What's going on around the Alamo, not just in terms of the immediate vicinity, but also kind of in terms of the broader campaign to subdue Texas back mm. to Mexican control? Well, alongside the Alamo, you had uh, Houston up in the north with a tiny and pretty ill-disciplined Texan main army. Uh, you had a very a, 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 um, a considerable Texan force, the largest in the field, made up mostly of U.S. volunteers who had come in the, across the border to help out. Um, east of San Antonio, at a place called Goliad, uh, under a, uh, I think he was actually, actually a commissioned U.S. Army officer, James Bannon, and the Texan assembly at Washington on the Brazos, uh, which declared Texas an independent republic in March. Um, a few days, that was actually a few days before the, the fall of the Alamo that, that happened. Uh, Santa Ana, of course, was with the main army, choosing to crush whatever opposition he found um, and take his time about it, I should say. And he had dispatched a very capable officer named Jose de Orea to deal with the rebels at Goliad. And he did a very efficient job of doing of that, forcing Farron to surrender. And despite Urea's objections, um, Santa Ana ordered that all prisoners be executed. And he was furious about that because he had actually, I mean, first of all, he had broken his own rules, uh, Santa Ana's own orders about taking their prisoners by accepting the surrender of Farron, and then promised he'd do his best to make them prisoners of war. And then he was basically told, no, you have to kill them all. And he was like, you know, that makes me, that dishonors me, right? But Santana didn't care. And so Urea washed his hands of it and went on with the army and the prisoners were all um, notoriously executed at Goliad. Um, the Alamo therefore forms one side of a twin disaster for the Texan cause. And at this time, short of the US getting directly involved, the Texan army didn't look able to stop Santana retaking the state piece by piece before anyone in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, could do anything about it. Well, it sounds like the situation for the Texans is pretty grim. Um, so we've got these 6,000 people surrounding 200 in the Alamo. How does the battle play out? Well, the siege lasted for 13 days and was more of a blockade than a proper siege. There were some skirmishing, some bombardment from the Mexican field artillery but they only made one serious attempt to take the place and that was the main assault where the Mexican infantry stormed the walls and killed every white male defender at the point of the bayonet before daylight on Sunday, the 6th of March, 1836. That's, that's yep. pretty rapid. <laughs> yeah, grim and bleak and to the point. Um, how does, because of course, we now look at it as one of these moments that has kind of gone down in American history, you know, that spirit of resistance and liberty against it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How does Santa Ana view this? Because this was his aim, right? He wants, you said at the start, he wants to make an example of the garrison. He does that. So how much does he play this up? Is this kind of something that he uses? You mentioned, you know, he's, he's good at bolstering his own reputation, you know, parallel, parallels with Napoleon there. Um, 
how does he sell this? Is this great victory? I've crushed these 200 rebels at um, the Alamo, or is he, is this just meant to be a blip for him? And this is just something he's got to do to then move on to the main action. Mm. Um, Practically speaking, it's a blip, but Santa Ana does sell it um, for the drama. Uh, He, I believe he, exaggerates the amount of people he's killed in the Alamo. Uh, But he's fairly honest about how many men he's lost. He says about 350 men killed and wounded. And uh, people assume that it was probably more closer to 500. Um, But to be honest, people argue about how many people the Texans killed all the time. And to be honest, 200 people killing or wounding 350 men is actually quite, if you look at casualty figures throughout history, that's not a, that's a pretty good ratio, a pretty accurate ratio of what you would expect the casualty figures to be. Anyway, he does send a dispatch back to Mexico saying, I've, I've won a glorious victory. I've won, I've, I've taken all these cannons. I've killed all these people, uh, these pirates. I've ex- executed them and you know, I'm going to march on to glory now. Uh, that's, sort of, that's sort of the way he spins it. Which is fair, which is, I guess, part of the course. One of the key things about the Alamo is, of course, the sort of the legend that builds up around the battle and, and who does what and Davy Crockett fighting surrounded by bodies and, uh, and things like that. Do we know for certain what happened to Travis and Bowie and Crockett? Yeah, they all died. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, no, uh, Mexican accounts, uh, the accounts of some of the slaves who were in the Alamo, uh, the testimony of women and some children uh, who were interviewed after the Alamo, um, is how we know how the attack went down. Um, Travis's slave Joe, for instance, was next to him when having rushed to the rampart, shouting out, no, no surrender, um, was hit in the temple by a Mexican ball and killed instantly, uh, right at the beginning. So he dies pretty much at the start then? Yeah, pretty much. He's out of it from almost the, uh, almost the get-go. Uh, and Bowie played no, depart- no, played no part in the defence because he was bedridden and probably had only a few days to live anyway, if we can uh, go by any of the, the accounts of, say, Susanna Dickinson and stuff like that. They felt the Mexicans found him in his room and probably just bayoneted him to death um, dubious if he even knew what was going on. So some people like to say that he fought, like he had pistols in his hands and he fought in his bed. It's impossible to know. Um, Crockett is obviously the most famous death, um, the most celebrated one. He's the one in all the paintings. Um, Susanna, Susanna Dickinson said that she saw him as she was being taken out of the Alamo lying near the church with a lot of dead Mexicans around him. And she saw what she called his curious hat lying next to him. We know that. We know that Joe was asked to identify the commanders of the Alamo and he identified them all by the Mexicans on on Sunday morning. Um, There is one Mexican account that Crockett was captured alive and executed with a a handful of others under Santa Ana's orders. But I personally find that slightly unlikely because I'm not really sure how the Mexicans at that point would have known who they were killing. 
really, um, and how that guy could have identified him, basically. But that being said, it doesn't necessarily rule it out, could have happened. Point is, he died in the Alamo, or according to one source, maybe trying to escape from the Alamo. But again, he died in the Alamo. They all died in the Alamo. That is all we know. And the only person we know with detail for sure is Travis, um, how he died. And the rest so, just passes into legend. Yeah. 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 Doesn't it just... So uh, let's let's stay with that legend because the legend matters, right? We're, we're oh. looking at remember the Alamo, and so Santorana he he makes a bit of a song and a dance, but you know this is part of a campaign. This isn't the end point. For the Americans, this goes on to become absolutely huge. You know, this is one of the the big moments in their nation building, right? This is this, this isn't you know the the American War of Independence, but it is big in in their national history. Why does that become the case? Is this, you know, something that the Americans are looking for? That you know, we've had this this state rise up, it's become independent. We're looking to support it, and and look what the Mexicans have done to these people who dared. You know, is it used like that? Is it Houston who's kind of trying to build a relationship to garner reinforcements that he thinks he's going to need because he's only got a small militia army and it just spirals from there? How does it play out? Well. Um... The, the news of the Texas Revolution was actually covered quite, quite well uh, in the American papers and indeed in uh, European papers, actually. Uh, word of the Alamo actually reached Britain at some point. And um, the atrocities were, were obviously sort of vividly reported. And uh, immediately, obviously, Santa Ana, as probably is right in this case, uh, is seen as um, just a bad guy. Uh, there's no there's no sugarcoating that he wasn't playing fair or by the rules, uh, as could be said, of uh, formal warfare. Um, that is obviously a propaganda boon to the rebels. And it is a great tool in the hands of, of, the, of the Texan forces to try and get support from the United States. The United States has always been trying to get a hold of Texas uh, or get a foot in the door with Texas. And Jackson would probably, had the war lasted longer, come to their aid officially, I would think, if he could, if he could swing it into Congress. Um, the legend of the, of the Alamo and the Texas Revolution is picked up so strongly by, by, the, by, the, by the United States, um, I think because of the, it just, it, because of how, how the grand themes at play suit the sort of the rhetoric of sacrifice and, and resistance against despotism in the name of democracy. Um, they, they likened it to Thermopylae and things like that. And so it became part of, after Texas became part of the United States, part of the you know, national legend. And it was also very important in the sort of the expansion of America, the United States. Um, in that this ushers in an, an era of them basically exer exerting their dominance over Mexico. So, first of all, there's the storytelling angle. If you can tell a story that's dramatic and tragic and stuff, then obviously it's it's easier to tell. Much people re re people respond to these high ideals of sacrifice and stuff. Travis was a really dramatic guy. He wrote a lot of lots of letters promising victory or death and talking about democracy and things like that and tyranny. And 
Yeah, so all of these things fitted the ideal of what America um, under pressure, I guess, um, could be capable of. And also there's, they spun, they, the, the, the consequences of the Alamo were somewhat overdone uh, as well, because obviously they said that this stand basically allowed everybody else to defeat Santa Ana. I'm personally not sure that's the case, practically speaking, but nonetheless, that is the legend. Uh, it's a fascinating legend as well, because we're talking about uh, fighting Mexico, who had only just overthrown a colonial power. Mm. They themselves had just become independent. So it's, it's strange how history becomes this sort of storytelling. And you mentioned Travis as well. He was 26 when he died. So the guy was, the guy was still in his youth, uh, getting very, very angry. Um, but despite this early successes, despite this intimidation, uh, despite the sort of the, the fear that Santa Ana is trying to strike, he really messes up the rest of the campaign, doesn't he? And that leads us to the Battle of San Jacinto. So what happens? Well, you know, as I said before, Santa Ana wasn't a military genius or anything like that. Um, and he didn't have to be, to be honest, to win this war. I don't think he, anybody had to be a military genius to win this war after that start. All he had to do from this point on is basically not to trip up and kill himself on his own sword. And he had one job, you know, keep the army in Texas long enough to prevent the rebellion from, from, from sort of surviving, suffocate it if, if need be. He didn't even need to be there. He could have gone back to Mexico and left his generals to do it. And probably the, that would have been the most sensible thing to do. But then again, it's not usual that you have to lecture an army commander in the, the benefits of not getting captured, especially if you are the head of state of the nation you are representing. Should have learned something from Roman history there. And also, I mean, he, he didn't see the need really, because it looked like he was just winning outright. A panic called the runaway, a run, called the runaway scrape seizes the Texan settlements. And Houston retreats. Um, and in trying to chase them down, Santa Ana overextends his lines of communication, and he can't possibly restrict Houston's movements by occupying territory. Uh, and so now in pursuing him, uh, Houston's pathetically small army north in an attempt to capture the rebel government or crush Houston, he splits his army up and working on faulty intelligence, obligingly traps himself in a loop of the San Jacinto River. Um, Houston reacts uh, very competently, if not brilliantly. Uh, some, actually, some say that he was still actually trying to avoid battle, but his troops refused to move, to take the fork in the road that would have led them away from the Mexicans. And he just had to follow them and then decided to fight a battle when he found out that these, the, um, the conditions were so favorable to him. Um, uh, he attacks the Mexican camp, overrunning it, capturing Santa Ana himself, the battle cry of his Texan and Tejano soldiers is remember Goliath, remember the Alamo. And just like that, everything, everything changes. And the rest, as they say, is, of course, history. Um, Santa Ana, defeated, captured. Is that it for Texan independence? You know, you, you've got the head of Mexican state. You know, that's, that's the ultimate bargaining chip, surely. And then thinking kind of more broadly, What's the significance of the revolution for the Mexican North American republics? Is this a kind of shift in terms of balance of power? Because, you know, the Mexicans have been shown the door. 
Oh, well, I mean, to go back to the very beginning, you're darn tootin' the capturing the president of Mexico won Texas's independence. Uh, yeah, the issue is now exactly what confronted the rebels at the start of 1836. Okay, um, that's security. How best to preserve that independence? It should be said that the Mexican generals still in the field when 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 the new when the just inexplicable news came that Santa Ana had been captured. Um, they argued for a bit about whether just to ignore this and fight on or retreat as per Santa Ana's orders, because he absolutely did a deal with Houston. You know, don't hang me because there was threats from the Texans to hang him. Um, I'll give you Texas if you let me go. Um, And so his generals argue for a while, and then eventually the senior one general, I think his name was Filasola, decided to retreat. And that didn't win him many, uh, many, (laughs) many cheers when he got back to Mexico, but he felt it was what he had to do to safeguard the life of the president. So it's not out of the question that the Mexicans will come back, is the point. And so, uh, um, being a rogue state, basically, um, that is just looking pretty poorly equipped to maintain its independence without a protector, um, and just being a regular festering spelk in the skin of Mexico, um, before the United States took a knife, gouged it out, and mounted it on a wall, the Texans basically need to cozy up with the United States. But this isn't the end for Santorana. As you mentioned, he stays in power for a couple of years later. Um, so what else is going on with, uh, with Mexico and how does the, what's happening in Texas influence all of those rebellions that you were talking about? Well, well, Texan independence didn't so much affect the revolutions in Mexico, but the loss of Texas and especially its loss to the USA um, did derail Mexico's potential to become a powerful rival to the northern neighbor uh, in the Americas because Texas dragged Mexico into direct competition and indeed confrontation with the USA barely 15 years after freeing itself from Spain, like you said earlier, Kit. Um, This is just the worst time to be having to deal with this sort of problem. And that effort, I mean, that effort in itself to, to free itself from Spain had taken 12 years of war to achieve. And the country is just not in a fit state, didn't know what type of government it needed to adopt to, to, to get to sort of um, take advantage of its position. And, uh, and, and there was Texas, you know, just, just constantly bleeding it a little and then turning around and saying, hey, hey, United States, Mexico is bullying us. Um, no sooner had, indeed, they won the war, um, Texas tr- applied to the United States for annexation, which was actually refused, although Jackson did re- recognize it diplomatically in December of 1836. Um, and the USA was not subtle through the 1830s about its ambitions in Louisiana and California. Irrespective of that, it was almost inevitable that annexation, when it would eventually happen, um, and the hard fact that American lawmakers 
by, by, by extension had to swallow was that when that did happen, it would eventually, uh, yeah, it would, be, it would be inevitable that this would be a major factor in instigating a war between Mexico and the United States, not a proxy war. It, was, it would be a full war when this happened. In 1845, you know, that came to fruition because they annexed Texas and war broke out, resulting in the ruinous conflict presided over by the irrepressibly ruinous Santa Ana. The result being that by the end of the so-called um, American Civil War, through hostile action, diplomatic treaties, and etc., Mexico would have been deprived of almost 55% of the land it had claimed in 1821. That's a swathe of country from Texas to California, comparable to the territorial extent of Western Europe, ceded to the United States in 30 years. And that's just scratching the surface because, case in point, about five, four or five years after the Mexican-American War, gold was discovered in California. And that brought millions of dollars worth of investment and trade into the territory and opened up the Pacific to the United States. So all of that can be said to have begun with Texas, the revolution, the symbol of which today is not an anonymous field at San Jacinto with its impressive victory monument, but what had been a crumbling adobe church in San Antonio, a place called the Alamo. No, I, I was, I was just thinking, I was just thinking how incredible it is that this, this, this Alamo, this, this tiny little battle. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, a huge battle here. Suddenly interferes in so many different ways. I mean, the French also got involved in Mexico. You had the pastry war and then the French intervention under Napoleon III. Um, you've got obviously the Mexican-American War, which then results in most of the generals in the U.S. Civil War were were down in Mexico, and you know, everyone from Bragg to uh, to some of the Union commanders. So it has such sort of long-lasting ramifications. And even today, people are making movies about the Alamo um, and sort of holding it as a national symbol. It's, it's an incredible uh, impact for such a, a very small engagement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely central as well to a lot of politics in Texas as well. Um, you can't run for office for essentially in Texas without, for some reason, you know, being aware of the Alamo or having a policy or a stance on the Alamo as it is today and what it meant, what it means and what you think it meant and things like that. It's absolutely fascinating that this place, which wasn't even the most important battle of the war um, and by any military standard was just, an, a, just a defeat, is, um, has this status in American history. Josh, that has been absolutely brilliant. Uh, thank you for coming back again. I. I don't even need to extend an invitation to come back at some point <laughs> in the future because let's be honest, you're bound to turn up. Um, and I don't suggest not suggesting therefore that you're the proverbial bad penny. Um, <laughs> thank you ever so much. You're on Twitter. I always get this wrong. Is it at land of history? Yes. I got it right this time at land yeah. of history. We've talked about your books already. They're in the history hack bookstore, wild East and bullocks. That's bullocks folks. No dirty jokes, please. Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira. Um, thank you ever so much for this. Uh, absolute pleasure. I'll be happy to pop up anytime again. <laughs> I think I have a weird subject. <laughs> Hello folks, Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts. 
but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four, five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us, instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your down-the-pub regulars, thank you, and have a great day. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.